Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. I want to transition a little bit because I am insanely interested because I haven't heard it. I haven't heard the story uh, of the day you actually broke the state record or set the state record. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? Well, that's, that was a long time ago, but uh, it was an interesting day. I won't go into some of the interesting details, but uh, there was two friends and I, we were staying, one of them had a cabin at the entrance of Baffin Bay, and this was uh, the spring of 1975. And uh, we kind of had an idea what we were going to do with the water had started turning pretty up in Baffin. And so we uh, decided we were going to go to what we called East Clayburg. It's been known affectionately by a different term, which I won't use on the, uh, on the otherwise I may be censored for sure. <laughs> but, but actually, which was interestingly enough, there used to be a certain individual that was a commercial fisherman in that area that had a, had a cabin floating in that area. And we won't go into again, but he was a, uh, that's the reason it was known by that certain name. But uh, he used to have his cabin there, and so, but he's been gone for years. He's been dead. But we fished there because East Clayburg was, had some beautiful rocks and formation, and we'd, we'd fish there off and on for years. And rarely did we get good green water. Baffin doesn't give green water very often. You kind of, if it, you get green water, you, you fished it. And that was, because, and there was nobody else down there, by the way, this day. This gives you an idea. This, this, this East Clayburg now averages probably 35 to 40 boats sometimes on it a day, and that means all, all year. So you can begin to realize just, you know, so if you pressure. constantly harvest fish from a certain area, and yeah, the fish still come to it, but they're mostly smaller fish, and people are getting mad at each other because one's anchoring up in front of another. When we approached it, going back to 75, we did it the same way, and that is we came up to the shoreline away from it, we started, we came off plane uh, several hundred yards from East Clayburg, and we chugged in on it on the shoreline, which was about 150 yards from the rock set. And then we got out and started wading around those rocks. And we caught a few fish off those rocks, but wind was a little high, as I remember. And so I couldn't see as well. And as I went to a point behind me uh, that kind of went to an area we used to call the bluffs, and... Uh, I picked up a real nice trout, about a nine-pound trout, off the point. And then there was an area that I wanted to fish that I'd done some good with back in the, in the early 70s and even late 60s. And so I waited on around the corner and went off and left these two buddies of mine that they were just out there blind casting a lot. I was more interested in trying to sight cast. And as I got around the corner and I came up on the first sandbar, uh, right next to shore, I could see what I first thought was two fish, and it was just one sow trout laying about six feet maybe from dry land. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was using at that time, I didn't want to make many lures. I was altering some of them, but I wasn't actually carving my own lures. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, I made some, but anyway, I was throwing what was a what they call an 823 Cardell red fin which may, some people will uh, know what that is. Oh, yeah. The uh, 823 model uh, was probably the closest thing to a perch 
that you could find, very narrow, it's lightweight, hard to cast because it was so lightweight, and uh, extremely important, the design of it. it uh, the design of it was, a wo- that was it would wobble, but never go more than about a foot and a half, two feet deep, which was good news and bad news. The good news is that you wouldn't go down and start grabbing grass. The bad news was it wouldn't go so deep that you could get a good subsurface strike. I like a subsurface strike simply because the fish takes the lure in. If it's on the surface, hey, that looks neat, watching that lure blown up, and a lot of people love that. That's fine if you're into watching the fish blow up as opposed to catching the fish. And I, I, I could tell you a story about that when I was at a meeting in Houston where the fellow that had too much to drink was six foot six and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. And I had to admit to him, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I don't know what I'm talking about. You just keep using that surface bait. You got the right lure. But anyway, so <laughs> that's up to, it's up to conjecture, but I like a subsurface strike. So anyway, this fish uh, was so close to shore, I had to figure out how close I could land to it. And I threw that, that Cordell redfin by, and again, it's a, it had black on the back that went to dark green, light green, yellow, and to white with bright red stripes. So it transitioned along the lure, transitions from a darker color to a lighter color. Well, when lures have that type of a shape, and color when it wobbles it has a lot of of the appearance of movement and it's an irregular movement that's the reason solid lures in my solid color they're okay but they don't work as well as lures that have a lot of built-in action and also that when the colors uh, is changed by the rotation of the lure the fish sees it as something that is not quite right mm-hmm. if you look at a little mullet or a little silver cider on the surface it's cruising and it's not consistent and that's another story I've, I've seen big trout under schools of mullet and not taking a thing and all of a sudden you throw an irregular lure through the bunch and the fish goes flying through all those mullet to take your lure that's just how they feed they're looking for something that's hurt that's easy to take well that's what i was trying to imitate by throwing that red fin by it and twitched it to the side of it and it turned and came after it and got was getting behind it and I have a real light rod so I was barely moving the the, the lure kept moving you don't let the lure sit still because mm-hmm. then they get too good to look at it and they'll tend to turn off uh, so you want them to constantly look at it and you want to really tick them off you want them to get angry that that little old bait's getting away from them and so I didn't retrieve it more than about five or six feet before eventually uh, the fish kind of just opened up and just took the, ba- the back end of the lure, just, just took the back end mm-hmm. and took off to the side. And luckily, uh, to this day, I remember one thing that as it went by, I realized I only had the tail hook, and there's two hooks on that lure. And as it went by, I drug the, the lure uh, in its mouth back over the side of its face to get the second hook into it. Because these fish are known, a lot of people know them as weak fish, which is the term for their mouth. They're very soft, and you're going to lose a lot of them. That's the reason people that use soft baits will hook them on, uh, and a lot of times they'll lose them very quickly because they that inner mouth is just like just like paper. paper. It'll rip yeah. loose. So that's the reason I used treble hook lures because I once I get one of those, and I may not get many of them. I may not get many chances on this. I got one chance. Mm-hmm. And I got the second hook into it because later on when I fought the fish, I didn't fight it that long, probably 15 minutes. But I, I fought it on, yeah. on real light line. On, you know, I had it on 12-pound test line. So I'm just basically letting it tire itself out because if anybody's had a fish of large size around their legs and it's got treble hook lures on it, 
uh, having to have a hook removed from your ankle when the fish goes right in the mud trail around your feet is not fun the next day when the doctor <laughs> goes in there and says, hold still while I pull this thing out. You speak from experience. And so, yeah. So anyway, uh, I've, I've got, I've, I've had to do it to myself and whatnot. <laughs> having to do it with yourself when all of a sudden your lure comes flying back at you and you hold up your hand and the lure hits your rod and sinks into your rod, but it also sinks into the fleshy part of your hand. And it's not even attached to the fish anymore. And now it's on your master hand and your master rod. How do you get that lure off of there? Because it's stuck <laughs> past the barb into your hand. So so anyway, that's that's what I was trying to do is tire it down a little bit. And I finally got it in and landed it. And uh, I knew it was a, a very big fish. It was as big as I'd ever caught, if not bigger. And uh, so anyway, the two guys came chugging up about that time. They were kind of upset that I'd gone off <laughs> and, and left them while I went fishing uh, down there. Cause, but then they joined me on the flats, and we caught a few more. And uh, uh, I lost one other fish that was also quite large that had a tiger, tiger stripe type look to it. Hmm. I don't know why that was, but from the side, it looked like he had stripes down its size. So anyway, but uh, so we caught, I caught, I think, eight or nine fish that day. And this was, again... This was in 75. I still had a commercial license. I could sell my fish. And so the next day, I decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and sell these fish because we'd waited at the dock. And one who waited at the dock, according to the scale they used to sell shrimp, it weighed 13 three-quarter pounds. Well, uh, we get to the house, and he had an old rusty uh, postal scale that said only uh, 12 and three-quarters. So what was the weight on it? Well, to make a long story short, over the next two days, we weighed on everything from HEB scales to uh, uh, different restaurant scales, Seven Seas Fish Market scale, uh, a couple of doctor scale, and it never weighed the same thing twice. That hmm. kind of give you an idea where hmm. this weight business can drive you crazy because yes, when you have a fish that's being weighed on FDA scales or on a doctor scale, which is about as accurate as you're going to get, yeah. And I've even seen, like, you put a fish on a, on a scale, and you put the head toward one end of the scale, and this thing's sitting on a fulcrum the way the scale is built. And it goes slightly one way or the other. It can weigh five or six ounces bigger or lighter, depending on how you lay it. So weight is a very difficult question to answer. So this one, whenever we weighed it, the only place I got it on a scale that had been checked by the FDA within one month previously had it at 13.9, and so that's the weight I accepted because that, that beat the old record by half a pound mm -hmm. at that time. And uh, plus, I, was, I wasn't too sure how the state of Texas would deal with uh, getting a record. I, did, I thought they'd be a lot more inquisitive. They'd want to check this and that, so I took the fish by uh, Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, uh, they had a scale uh, out there along with the game wardens near what was at that time the entrance to the Padre Island area, and that was mm -hmm. even before the big freeway that goes across. And, and we checked the stomach contents. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, found that everything, including crabs, had eaten a crab, a soft-shell crab, hmm. and I think two or three little mullet. Yeah. But by this time, I already had the certified weight uh, on us deal and uh, turned that in, and uh, a few months a few months later, uh, it was certified as the state record at that time. Now, what was the official length on it, sir? Uh, well, 
on when we measured it, we measured it in a way that's not measured nowadays. We used square tail measure, mm-hmm. where we laid it on a board and mar- marked where the nose was, and then marked along the the square of the tail. We didn't pinch the tail, so the actual length is different than what you would see now. It was thirty three and three quarter inches at that time, which was you know pretty long. I've caught one or two fish longer than that that didn't weigh anywhere near that big. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing, <coughs> excuse me, so far as how big this fish was, if you look at it, like you can see it on the wall, look how big this girth was. Oh, it's enormous. It, it's, it's almost as big as your thigh. It was 19 inches through the, through oh the girth. Oh, my gosh. That's so as big as, as uh, what was his name, the big football player at Texas that was old uh, <coughs> Tyler Rose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> excuse me. And by the way, that's not a COVID cough. That's just from talking too much. <laughs> Do you need a glass of water? Sir? No. Okay. I mean, looking at it, it's just above your fireplace and an amazing fish. And, and so that's obviously a skin mount? Uh, that's Yeah, this was done, uh, happily done by a guy, guy named Ansel Brundrett. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about Ansel, <laughs> he was a famous uh, taxidermist and so forth, going back to the age of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hmm. And so... He did skin mounts at that time, <coughs> and so anyway, <coughs> I'm pardon me for all that coughing. Hopefully, this is edited. So anyway, uh, I I left it with him, and he did a beautiful job with all the techniques that you consider that they had at the time. That is the actual fish head, the skeleton, and the back. He took all the meat off, and mm. so it is basically enclosed with stuffing. And he took all the measurements so it would match exactly. Now we have people that do wonderful mounts in corpus with better techniques because they have better equipment. Yeah. Nope. But, well, now, I mean, you can get replica mounts, new wave taxidermy out of Stewart, Florida. Oh, yeah. Uh, Buddy, new, uh, Buddy Kirkhart uh, and his family, they do an amazing job, which is a, an amazing thing because, one, you, as long as you get the length and girth, they can basically customize the mount and you get a chance to pay, potentially release that fish if that's what you so right. choose, right? And so now, uh, obviously, with that technology is 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 so super, super super paramount. Excuse me, but with that fish, I mean, looking at it, the, the girth, I'm sitting right in front of it. It's amazing. And not only that, but the two that are literally behind me, those two starfish, was at eleven and a quarter, eleven and three quarters, eleven and a half, and uh, one I think was ten six. And then uh, there's there's some other ones for I didn't participate in star for a while because I felt unfair <laughs> since I had an advantage of, of how I fished. But yes, I finally, in fact, uh, I won't go into details, but I was trying to change the way they set up the star. I'd like to see it like big trout, for example. This, that's the best way to put this, is big trout. If you're going to catch a star trout, you better catch it in the first two or three weeks of June because after that they're going to be spawned out yeah. and, and they're going to be lightweight. And you can catch one fish is going to weigh six half a pound to, to a pound lighter. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to basically suggest they do it into a monthly awards, mm-hmm. like fish caught during June, one caught during July and August, and then have a grand drawing where yeah. for the for the major for, award and then give really nice prizes for the other two things. And that way, the big trout deal, because some people hearing this will think I'm wrong, but, I, but I've caught a lot of trout, and I've, I've caught 34-inch trout that didn't weigh 10 pounds mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer. And so that that fish should have weighed, according to everybody's estimate, something like 12 to 15 pounds. Uh, but these fish, they vary in weight, just like just like a mother giving birth to a child <laughs> will will change weights. I mean, she's not going to want to see pictures of her belly sticking out about a foot. 
for the rest of her life that uh, that's that's the job of the of the fish is that belly needs to stick out because she's going to give birth to a to a lot of eggs that then need to get the the milt on them and yeah so basically so, that's the thing is that fish that was a March the 15th, if I remember correct, fish. Well, 15th or 16th. So is that your longest? It, so you said 34 inches. Is that your longest trout that you no, ever I caught? No, I caught one. I've caught a couple of them that were longer than that. One of them I chased. Fact, one of the most interesting fish I ever caught was one I caught in Baffin all by myself. Uh, spotted it first cruising in the inner sandbar. on on uh, That would be the uh, western side of, of, uh, of uh, Baffin. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, got after it threw lure after lure at it pulling my little whaler by the way behind me because i could see it and it was just acting very strange and it it uh, actually relaxed and stuck its tail out of the water two or three times in grass and i stopped anchored the boat out and just waited and it finally started cruising again after this was and that's what i'm talking about is a time frame of well over an hour and finally, it cruised back from where I had really seen it and went across the sandbar that I had been walking down and anchored up to and been in a little slough in between this bars and started going out deeper. And out of frustration, I cast at it one more time as it's now in water about three, four, three or four feet deep, but very clear water that I could see. Yeah. It jumps all over the lure like it hadn't seen it all day. Mm. And yeah. so How that's, big was that, that one? That's the way trout are. Uh, you just you can see them turn down, turn down, turn down, and all of a sudden, for some reason, they get turned on. And sometimes it takes time. They're, they're just not in a feeding mood. They're not hungry. It's not breakfast time yet, mm-hmm. or it's not noon lunch time yet. So, and so that to me is it was one of the more interesting fish. That it took me dang near two hours, and that fish was about thirty four and a quarter. And I can't remember if I kept it or let it go. I'll be honest with you to this yeah. day. I think I let it go because I, it wasn't going to be that heavy. It was probably going to weigh about eight and a half, nine pounds. I don't think it'd be 10. And then I caught one and that I can remember down near South Padre, way up in an area near where people call the saucer. And uh, there's an old channel that goes way up in there and dead ends on the backside of that South Padre Island. And uh, I, I waited that back. I was staying down there at a hotel, and uh, I saw several nice trout. I caught several, and I landed uh, uh, one that was right about 34 and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took that fish in. I sold it. That was, uh, I think that was a summer summer of 73 or 74. And I think if we, we waited. Uh, I didn't know. I sold it in the round. And in the round, by the way, that's the way we used to keep fish. If you gutted them, sometimes the throat would turn black, mm-hmm. and the commercial fishermen didn't want to. They couldn't sell them, even though the fish, though even though fish is fine, that throat looks bad, scares mm-hmm. people. They think it's been around too long, and that can happen in an hour sitting on ice and ice water. So we would basically bring them in with the guts, and then we would give the guts to the crab fishermen, who would then put them in their crab traps. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that evolved over the years. So and that fish weighed uh, right at eight and a half pounds. Uh, and that was over 34 inches long. So yes. length, you can we used to we call those cigar fish. I mean, they're just basically or needle needle shaped fish, and uh, just like I've caught redfish. I caught a redfish one time that everybody th- said that looks like a perch from the body shape because it was only 31 inches long, and gill gutted, it weighed almost 13 pounds. Goodness, and it shouldn't have weighed gill gutted more than about seven or eight. So 
fish vary so much in weight depending on what they've been eating, what is their genetic makeup, where, sure. where they're caught. And so uh, the big trout situation, it's changed a lot. And uh, a lot of the places like where I'm describing where this fish was caught, I haven't caught a big trout off of it in years. There's now two f- floating cabins that are somebody decided that that area needed <laughs> to be taken over by their cabins. So they now sit right right near where I used to fish. And that's another issue. We have people that have put cabins. There used to be uh, sandbars. The guy that was one of the, uh, not a founder of GCCA, but one of the greatest fishermen in Laguna Madre history was Chatter Allen. Mm-hmm. And Chatter and Doc Ford Allen, I, I was extremely lucky to have those guys give me their input. And uh, maybe I gave them a little of my input over the yes, years. Sir. We had a lot of fun. But Chatter used to love to fish the area that's the Badlands right off the tip of the islands right there just as you get into Baffin and it's mm-hmm. got rock shelf uh, mud it's just almost bottomless goo because the the, the uh, people who pump out the intercoastal have been putting spoil there for forever so uh, I, could, I could tell you stories of people who got out there and they wished to god they had never gotten out there but anyway he would push pull that area and there was a sandbar right off the edge of it that uh, big trout used to come up on and then they would come up all into the shallows because there were no boats running through there. And you'd see big trout, you'd see redfish, you'd see all sorts of fish on that plant. I don't, I don't even try to fish it anymore because mm. it's got, it, it had as much as 15, 20 cabins I'm floating here. right where those sandbars are. So again, it's, it's, it's a issue of new people. Uh, Doc Ford Allen used to have a cute little word for him. He called them JCLs. Johnny come lately's <laughs> and then which is a, it's not a real polite way to say it it's just new people that are coming sure. in and they don't have the understanding and the background that a lot of people would have that if they go to an area that's been good fishing for wade fishermen and so forth that it's going to work out for people anchoring a boat there and all of a sudden they can get out there at night and catch all these big fish that come mm-hmm. right to their boat yet the fish know right where that that floating houseboat is and they won't get within 100 yards yeah so I got a question though. So, all right, you, you set the record that stood for what? 20, 20 plus years, right? It was 21 years later when someone when caught one that it weighed a, post, a postage stamp more than that. Uh, according to the weight that they, when they had it, uh, they had it at, at uh, 13 pounds, 11 ounces, I think is what it was. And, and was, this one was at 13, nine yet. I had weights bigger than that. And the girth on that fish that, that, broke this record was 17 and a half inches hmm. and it wasn't and it was an inch shorter in length yeah so so i've always said you know my that poor old fish and by the way that fish held the record not me uh, i just got lucky enough to catch it yes sir so i always said that that fish is still as big as any of them that, that have been brought in to this day yeah uh, except for maybe that one that was brought in in south padre which is now the state record which it's supposedly still out there somewhere, but I, I don't think it's still out there the size that it was said to be. So anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yes, but, sir. I wanted to ask you, though. So, I mean, when, when you were notified that Jim Wallace broke your, stake, broke your state record, I can't talk right now. When Jim Wallace broke your state record, uh, how did you get notified? What were your thoughts, feelings? Oh, I, I had I had so many people over the years tell me that my record had been broken, or I say my record, the fish's record had been broken a number of times, probably eight to ten times at least over the years. And I say, well, if they do, they do, because that's just the way, that's what fishing's about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was out there trying to do it myself. I wanted to catch a bigger fish. I wanted to catch one at that time to beat the national record, which was 15 pounds, three ounces. And uh, there were stories about Baffin, 
there was a biologist group that said they'd found half of a big trout one time that was, uh, they estimated the fish when it was live was probably 38 to 40 inches long and possibly weighed 20 pounds, and which I don't really credit that as being accurate. You know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of things that have happened. Like I know somebody brought a fish in, tried to enter it in a contest that was a uh, Corvina out of California, mm-hmm. which is a, looks like a big, big sand trout. Right. They get up 25 pounds or so. Yeah. And so well, in, in contests and in gaining, uh, shall we say, the, the recognition, so forth, people will do a lot of things. Uh, that's the reason I, when I caught that fish, I had the stomach contents looked at and, and had a bunch of people look at it, mm-hmm. doctors and whatnot, so that even x-rayed the silly thing. I don't know whatever happened to the x-ray. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew if there were lead weights in the belly, that that would show up for sure. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, uh, things have changed a lot. And uh, I hope somebody catches a really large fish, larger fish. I hope somebody catches the largest fish of their lifetime. But there's only one bad thing that happens with that. If you caught that biggest fish and you're a young person, what are you going to do the rest of your life? <laughs> so sometimes the pursuit of these things is far more fun and far more enjoyment. And I have the comment about trophy fish that I get. I get a lot of static. If you, the CCA, uh, and uh, this Ananias Club, I, I came up with. I made a comment one time, uh, of course, one of my best friends about you know what a trophy trout is, and I and I made the comment that a trophy trout is something you've really worked hard to catch. No matter how you caught it, whatever you did, if it is what you wanted and you worked hard to get it, then it's a trophy. Well, he thought, no, no, that has to be about size. So he brought back all sorts of information about size and and so forth about, you know, that's what you need to have. And about this time, I'm in his office when we're discussing this. He's got 10 or 11 patients out waiting, and he's arguing with me about what is a trophy fish. And his his sister comes down the hallway and says, what are y'all arguing about back there? You got patients waiting. He says, says, oh, I got a nice person to ask about this. School teacher will be able to evaluate what is a, a trophy? When you get a trophy, what is it a, a, a measurement of? And she says, well, it has nothing to do with size. It has to do with how much effort you put into getting it. And he goes down the hallway <laughs> screaming and saying, oh, my God, turned turn down by my own sister. <laughs> so anyway, size size is a, is a measure, yeah. But to be trophy is like that trout I described earlier of spending an hour and a half on the fish, maybe two hours, and finally catching it. That was more of a trophy because that, I had to work for that really hard. That big trophy on that fish on the wall, I just happened to th- make a good cast, got lucky, and got the second hook in. And by the way, I don't think I mentioned it. When I landed it, the only hook that was still in it was that second hook. The we original didn't. hook was out. Hmm. So, therefore, sometimes doing the little things at the right time can yeah. make a big difference. So, here at Speckle Truth, we run uh, what's called the Dirty 30 program, as I talked about, at the Ananias Fishing Club. And kind of how we're, you know... Um, capturing data about these fish of that size right the 30 inch mark is really the holy grail of any trophy trout angler right 30 inches and we call them the dirty 30 uh and so fish that are registered and talking with mike mcbride and his podcast and knowing mike for god knows how long uh now close to eight years um you know 30 inch fish make up basically one half of one percent is kind of what he's saying of the trophy of, of the trout population and so um, of the, the Holy grail is, is a 30 inch fish. So the question that I have for you is about if you could put it into a number, uh, how many fish over 30 inches have you probably caught in your life? 
Trout? Trout, yes, sir. Uh, that, that would be a pure out-and-out <laughs> gift. And be guessed somewhere around 150, something like that. Uh, but that, And that's, again, that's a guess. Yeah. Because at times, like when I'm describing back when I was catching those fish, uh, sometimes I'd catch three or four in a day, and then I'd catch four or five another day. Oh, my God. And they'd God. be 30 or 31. I've, I've caught, a, caught a lot of broken back uh, big really? trout. I say that what they were, that was the early signs of DDT poisoning. With some of these uh, big trout would begin to get fusion in their backbone. And you'd catch a trout that just didn't fight worth a darn, and it'd be 30, 31, 32 inches long, and maybe not even weigh 7, 8 pounds. And the back of it, when you would begin, try to flex it with your hands, it would be solid as a rock. Hmm. And we used to catch, like I said, I've stood still at East Clayburg, and in fact, we used to be like I was dove hunting. Would be sitting on a. In fact, one time I did take a stool down and sat on the stool because I'd get <laughs> tired, because you'd watch for the current growing across there, yeah. and the the water color would change, and sometimes you'd be sitting there, and all of a sudden here'd come a cruising couple of big trout. You've been sitting there, you haven't seen anything for an hour, and now then you got a couple of fish to cast at. Oh but you God. just had to be patient. And there were bunch, not a bunch of people running around, so sure. the fish were cruising. They'd be coming in to feed or leaving, and uh, you'd say be sometimes sitting in the same place for oh three four hours and just waiting for the fish to come back in because it was one of the areas that was easy to see them. They were on the edge of a gra- of a rock set and near to a grass line and sandbar, so. You would have all sorts of, of uh, things that would help you distinguish the fish, and then sometimes you'd have the fish do what I said earlier, where they'll go into ambush mode in grass where they'll stick their head down, mm-hmm. and uh, their tail would be, they, they basically uh, change their body weight, you know, like they have that inflatable mm-hmm. air sac. Yeah, air bladder, yeah. And, they'll, and that way they can adjust the depth uh, that, that they're swimming. They, they, uh, that way they can go deep or they can go shallow. And uh, so they'd be sit there where they're partially inflated, and that would make that tail come up, and they'd be sitting there, some of them almost sound asleep. <laughs> and then you've got to literally wake them up with a surface splashing lure. You don't want to get too close, and you want to get it to their side. And I've seen that in grass that was so thick, it looked like you could mow it, and, they, and you couldn't see the fish at all. All you could mm-hmm. see was the tail. And I developed a method of where I always would make sure I would get down current from them and uh, cast up current because I knew the grass would be bent over toward me. Mm-hmm. So when I'd bring the, bring the lure down it, the, the hooks wouldn't be catching in the grass. They would be going down the grass line. And I get it to the side of them, and I have some lures that are noisier than others. And I like to use, under those circumstances, a white lure because I can see it better. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't really mimic what I was saying earlier about the color definition because you're really trying to let the fish know that there's something to ambush. That's fun to watch. If you're sitting there watching that tail suddenly go down, you're working the lure to the side and working the lure to the side, and you talk about a surface strike. I bet. And, man, you talk about when all of a sudden that fish just all of a sudden is just ball whoop, and the lure <laughs> disappears, and now you've got that fish, and your line is going to one area in the grass, and the fish is to one side, and then the fish is to the other side, and you're going down your line saying, please don't break my lure off, and please don't break loose while you're peeling all the grass off your line. And uh, when so, you've got a big fish on, that's, that can be an interesting deal. That's how my wife caught that redfish that's over your head. That fish, she hooked it with one of my little spoons. That's a, that was when it was legal to keep a 30-inch for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was before the tag like we have now. And that fish, she hooked it off one side of the boat, and the fish is off the other side. I'm ramming the pole in, and I'm getting out trying to land the fish because I want her to get the fish, and I want her to, I don't want to lose my lure either. <laughs> <laughs>
This season, we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors, and that is Down South Lures. From their regular 4-inch Southern Shad to the 5-inch Supermodel and versatile 3-inch Burner Shads, it's easy to see why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, its natural swims-in-the-fall action produces big trout not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that, though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Reel's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider Reel Sportswear. Mirror Lure is an iconic inshore fishing lure company found in every angler's arsenal. From their legendary lineup of lures such as the Top Dog and Catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the Little John and Marshmallow, these lures not only catch fish, but have produced for decades. So whether it's a 17MR or a Paul Brown Series Fat Boy, always remember to tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bike. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal. With great fish catching colors, my personal favorites, Texas Turnip, Bay Mistress, Plum Nasty, to name a few, it's easy to see how these things produce time and time again. So next time you're targeting that next big bite, I highly encourage you to fish the original custom Corky. And remember, the big girls aren't colorblind. So um, I want to ask you um, one about the freezes. Uh, but before that, uh, and just kind of what you've seen over the course of time, you know, with the freezes, I've always heard, you know, uh, being from southeast Louisiana, and then now coming to Texas and understanding the longstanding history and some of the weather events that have transpired over the course of history here along the Texas coast and how, you know, some of those freezes have basically, you know, killed um, through the fish kills and through those freezes, you know, some extremely large trout. So I want to ask you about that. But before we do, what I never asked you, but like, what was it about trout? Because I see you talking and telling these stories and I... I see you smiling and for folks that are just listening and not being here, you know, trying to describe it, I can see you reliving some of those memories and, and the joy that you have in terms of, you know, watching that fish strike the bait and then kind of seeing your emotional, your nonverbals and how, how much joy that brings you. So what was it about trout though, that kind of drew you to just try to catch those or target those? Was there a certain instance or was there is uh, that and as much uh, the impressions you got from other people, like said the the uh, Ananias Fishing Club uh-huh. and the old guys from 97A, 90, most famous uh, cabin, which is no longer 97A by the way, <laughs> but it was a famous fishing cabin that Fourth of July fishing trip that I got to participate in in the last few years uh, before they basically sold the cabin, and sometimes that during the two weeks, uh, the weeks the time before and after the uh, uh, 4th of July, 
uh, there'd be guys coming in to fish, and they'd be famous people. I mean, Jack Cowan came down there. People know who the artist was. That's how I got to know Jack Cowan. And uh, have lots of other people, uh, football players and so forth, some people that they, people would know. But it would sometimes be up to 45 people at this little old bitty cabin, and it'd be, look like a, it looked like a boat sail because of all those 15, 20 boats anchored around. And, and I got the job half the time. A couple of, of us younger guys would go get the ice for everybody, and then we'd take the fish to market so that we'd get, then get money for gasoline so that they could do this or that. And, but it was a wonderful experience because those guys, some of them, they had a barbershop quartet, and so they'd be singing some songs, which, shall we say, you can't sing in mixed company anymore, but they're old minstrel songs from the, from the 1800s. And, uh, but people like Chatter Allen and mentioned earlier and Doc mm -hmm. Ford Allen, which was almost like a second father to me mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, Smiley Davis, which was my coach in high school. And then a lot of famous, like I said, retired federal judges and other people would be down there. And, and so getting the, the, uh, input from them of what they consider to be difficult. There was even a guy that I never met that died before that time named Ozzie Sokol that loved to fish for big trout and he used nothing but spoons and uh, that's what he liked to use well chatter allen loved spoons and then ever and then all of a sudden we began to get get into these different floater divers i started playing around with boone spinanas and uh, altering them changing their color that's where i got into the idea that maybe the people who build these lures don't really have the total idea they build lures to shall we say sell to fishermen mm -hmm. not to not to catch, catch fish, fish yeah and so, in fact, that's what Mark Soson told me one time. I, a lot of people know who Mark was. He's mm -hmm. one of the editors for Saltwater Sportsman. And he came down, did a program with us, talking about our hatchery when we first built the hatchery out at Barney Davis area. But most of them honored or thought the most redfish, if you get it in front of a redfish, the odds are about 90% that you're going to have a strike from that fish. And sometimes if you miss the first strike, you're going to get it on the second. And that doesn't matter whether it's a spoon or whether it's a fly or whatever, redfish are fairly consistent. They're they're aggressive. They they want to eat. Big trout or not, big trout have to see something that they they can catch. Remember, they're they're like I said earlier, they're they're grandma and grandpa. Remember, redfish don't get big until they're mm -hmm. eighty and ninety pounds, and they're on the offshore area. So they're just the little old ones we catch, the little piddling little twenty to thirty inches. They're just children. They're little kids, and so they'll hit just about anything. Big trout, they're reaching toward the end of their life. Uh, Kyle Spiller used to say that once they reach six years to, to nine years, they're, they're pretty much going to die within a short time. Mm -hmm. That's the reason it's kind of a, a false assurance that you're going to catch that fish again if you let a 30-inch or whatever go. If you want to st stick it on the wall and you want to keep it as your fish, there's nothing wrong with that. Because that I, I can see guys, I've seen guys let big trout go, and a few minutes later I see them over there floating belly up. So don't fool yourself. You're far better off so far as the future. If you get into a bunch of 22 to 23-inch trout, keep one or two of those for eating and let the rest of them go. If you get into 18 inches, let's keep one or two for those to eat, let the rest of them go. I mean, the limit is five, yeah. but you don't need to keep five. Sometimes two or three. I can't eat. My wife and I will eat one fish. Yeah. And so half the fish we catch, which I say are drum, we'll eat one and we give the rest to some of these people that are diabetics or that uh, mm -hmm. don't have enough money. And I have connections through different doctor buddies that, uh, that also some of them don't fish anymore. They, they've got bad backs or whatever. And so they can enjoy it. Yeah. And it's like 
uh, to use something not so political, but I love the comment uh, uh, that uh, Rush Limbaugh makes, talent on loan from God, which is really a statement that it's not me. It's, it's just for some reason God saw it as a, an, a, an ability to give to you to, to use and to use it properly. And so by being able to catch fish and share fish, either by letting someone else catch them, by watching push-polling them around. Mm-hmm. I've had days when I push-pole other people, never even picked up a rod, and had a, just a ball watching oh, yeah. them catch fish. So uh, the big trout was a challenge, and it was fun. And there used to be in this club, I mean, there used to be a, a, a blood and guts competition among the guys. I mean, they They'd pull each other down, lie to each other. You used to call it the decoy. <laughs> the decoy was whenever you caught a fish in a certain area, you'd lie like a devil and tell them you caught. I had Doc Ford one day, even when he was already a friend, try to run me right through the rocks at, at East Clayburg to where he, they supposedly had caught a bunch of fish. That was a total lie. They caught him 50 miles <laughs> south of that. I mean, it wasn't even close. Of course, he, we caught it be a lot closer, but I didn't trust him that much after that <laughs> because the decoy is kind of funny. I mean, it just as long as you do it, it it's okay to decoy somebody and f- fib to them if they ask you about it. Now, just to volunteer it out, now that's not right. That's when you're misleading. You're you're giving them false information they didn't ask for. And if you give them false information that way, then then basically you're trying to just lie. Yeah. But decoying them away from your favorite hole, now that's a different deal. If they <laughs> ask where it is, say, oh, darn. And that's when you can always do the old deal where you stick your finger in your mouth. I caught it right in this, this right. area of my jaw. <laughs> But, but that's part of fishing. That's what it's about. Yeah. But that's what trout were always difficult. And I'd seen one or two of them on the shorelines and had difficulty catching them back in the back in the 50s, late 50s, when I would go down with my dad when we first had a boat and would go down to land cut. And of course, well, he knew Doc Ford Allen because he was a dentist as well. And uh, so I got to know him and we got to be very close. Uh, won't go into details there why, but we just got to be very close. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've still got his marquee that we built for his office. And he used to take some of my lures. He used to drive me crazy. I'd build a lure for him that he said he wanted it because he liked it. He came in one time at 3 o'clock in the morning to tell me that lure I'd given him that he'd finally lost it. He'd caught a whole bunch of fish down here on the bay front, and he wanted to know if I had another one just like it that I could give him because he couldn't get him to hit anything else. And I said, Doc, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. What are you doing coming by? I've got to go to school the next day. <laughs> That's awesome. So anyway, but that was that was what the the um, 97A group was like, and they were the ones that put the goal. Ananias always the president was going to be the person who caught the largest trout. That had to be witnessed by a a member, a fellow member, and uh, so anyway, that was considered to be the creme de la creme of honors. You became the president, which also meant you got responsible for putting on the dinner each <laughs> yeah. year and so forth. So. It was kind of a, a win some, lose some deal. And, and, and I, I have to be honest, though. I mean, uh, insanely humbled to be invited. So David Bjork is now the president, right? Right. And uh, he's worked hard at it, too. And he's become a very excellent fisherman. And, and, and uh, I'm appreciative that he's befriended me through Speckled Truth. And then I said, hey, I, I think I think it'd be really cool if you came down and talked to him. And then understanding the history and lineage of the Ananias Fishing Club and then not only that, but the makeup of the club and who's in it, to include yourself, David McKee, and to name a few, uh, Scott Murray. And, I mean, just true legends of the game here in the Texas coast. And <laughs> here I am, and I was actually in my uniform that night, you know, talking to you guys about big speckled trout surrounded by, uh, 
again, just legends of the game. And I felt about this big <laughs> and, uh, I appreciate your, you guys humility and just humoring me, humoring me and just listening and let me kind of tell my story, my passion, you know, and, and hopefully you guys see that, you know, come 40, 30 years later, you know, trying to again, can continue to instill that passion in other folks that follow speckle truth to not only target the fish, but gain an appreciation for the fish so much so that when they actually do catch the fish, that they're going to want to release the fish and ultimately take care of a resource. And that's the intent. And that's, that's why it's so paramount to have listeners of the podcast listen from you, uh, who's again, kind of been the forefront, the pioneer, I keep saying that, of conservation, not only here along the Texas coast, but giving way to CCA as a guy from Southeast Louisiana uh, and a younger fella, I can remember when gill nuts were pulled out of Southeast Louisiana waters. And that was as a result of GCCA. And now I'm sitting with the man who kind of gave the ammunition to kind of do that. And so not only has the fishery benefited here in Texas, but for, you know, listeners in, in Louisiana also have to have a true appreciation for this man <clears throat> because he's better basically the Louisiana estuary as well and keep going right Uh, Florida and so forth and so on so uh, I just want to say thanks again but I did have uh, two more questions so the first is you know with the freezes um, you know talking about some of those big big fish kills uh, you've obviously experienced that have you seen a lot of really large trout and give us an estimate about maybe some of the big trout that you've seen did you ever have you interviewed yet Billy Sheikah one of the, I haven't. I would love to. <laughs> you might want to talk to Billy. Billy was a good friend. Okay. Uh, he was he was a commercial guide and one of the best out there. Billy was a uh, very interesting character. I mean, like I, I've got stories about him that are going, including the family. He's had an interesting family and so forth. But anyway, Billy and I went down. He called me and we went down the two. Well, I think it's two or three days after the freeze in in, uh, in 1983. 83. That's right. And uh, we went down because we'd heard rumors, and we just wanted to see what was down there. And it it had begun to get warm enough to where we could go down in heavy suits. Because remember, the temperatures went into the mid mid teens and mm-hmm. stayed that way for days. In fact, Corpus Christi Bay, uh, the shoreline froze in some places out to 20 feet. You could walk wow. out into Corpus Christi Bay on ice wow. that was right on the edge because it had just stayed so still. So the uh, shallow water got cold enough to freeze. Salt water freezes at a much higher temperature a lower temperature lower, yeah so anyway uh, we went didn't want to go down there we didn't know what we we're going to run into so we went down in his boat and we had a biologist and somebody else with us and again we went up to the baffin bay and as we went in the channel and we looked off toward we were seeing individual floating fish and most of the fish we saw floating were large fish they were and i say large they were 25 up to in the 30s and we got over, there was a line of, uh, I'm guessing it was just decomposing particles coming out of these fish as they would blow it up and the sun would hit them on the surface uh, all along uh, the South Kennedy shore. And we got over there, and I've got pictures of them somewhere, uh, of just line up and you just look and then just as the sun would uh, ricochet off their bellies and uh, you just look like somebody waving at you with a white glove. Uh, for uh, for a mile or so mm-hmm. right there near the entrance into Baffin Bay and that was the uh, some of the deepest water area was around the channel and uh, then we would go we went on a shoreline down near where Yarbrough Pass is uh, 
and got pictures of Billy. I've got pictures of him holding up 30-some-odd-inch trout, uh, just, you know, decomposing on the shoreline. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, it was something to see that you don't want to see, but you see it and you just, and there were, of course, massive amounts of mullet. I mean, it, it, it killed everything because to understand what a freeze does is uh, what, what biologists call a thermocline slip, is that the shallow water gets extremely cold first. And then the fish go deep to go where even though normally the deep water is, is cooler. But in this case, it becomes warmer relative to the shallow water that's up high well and even the in the over the deep water the the upper area is uh quite cool well what happens is that shallow water uh, that gets extremely cold also gets denser and as it gets denser then it begins to flow backwards and that's what they call the thermocline slip Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden that cold water goes deep and those fish that have been hiding down there trying to get away from that they're in water, say, that's 45 to 50 degrees, and all of a sudden they get hit by water that's right at freezing. And so uh, they can't adjust. They have nowhere to go. Uh, it's just like you or I getting caught in a snowstorm. Uh, yeah. we're, we're caught. And unless you're properly clothed, and those trout don't have much clothes or fat, uh, you're pretty soon the gills don't work anymore. How long uh, was it till the actual fishery rebounded from that? We went into Baffin trying to catch fish in all of our favorite areas for all the way through to the next fall. And I never caught a fish out of Baffin Bay from that spring of the, uh, that's 1983 to 84. I didn't catch a fish out of Baffin Bay till the fall of 84. Hmm. Wow. So So it was almost a year. A year, yeah. Because they had to come from somewhere else. Because it pretty much annihilated. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it just because there was no deep water escape area, except the inter and then the intercoast canal. They got in the intercoast canal, and you'd think, well, that's safe. Well, then all of a sudden, here comes it, and it was proven in '89 when that freeze hit that the uh, tugboats shoving the uh, big uh, oil and mm-hmm. and uh, caliche and all sorts of uh, barges through there were then churning up the bottom, and so they were creating that thermocline slip. They made it because there wasn't, wasn't a th- real thermocline. That water was stagnant, and yeah. so it was staying warm deep. But when they went through, it mixed it up, and they all of a sudden a shot of cold water hit those fish, and they died. Hmm. So uh, that's when the, the uh, Parks Parks and Wildlife Department began to shut off certain access to certain areas because they realized what was causing these fish kills and then telling people, you cannot go out and net these fish uh, and... Uh, because a lot of people are going out and filling their freezer with these fish. I don't know why, but, but yeah. you know, it, artificial respiration was not going to help on these <laughs> fish. They're all dead. Dead is dead. Yeah. And so then that's when the, the hatcheries begin to be looking at the possibility of quickly replacing these if we get a freeze. Because we're going to get another one. I know everybody's, we're into very hot weather, very different weather from yeah, what we had sure. when I was going to school. We don't get anywhere near the amount of rain. What are we, about five to six inches under normal? Uh, half the grass and the, and shout, the different grasses that uh, depend on fresh water in the lagoon are not there. Mass, like like wigeon grass is one of the most famous one, Halidouli or whatever the name is for it scientifically, but that's one of the most productive grasses, not only for the fish, but the, for shrimp and crabs and everything else, and ducks love it, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the, the, the uh, dabbling ducks. Mm-hmm. Redheads like the shoal grass that's on the bottom, and that comes back pretty quickly. So, but that 
widgeon grass has never come back since these freezes. I'll be darned. And we don't get enough rainwater anymore. So all this weather begins to play a big part in the success of whether or not we're going to have fish or not. And so what we have to do is come up with better systems to, f- to give them back. That's the reason we've got redfish uh, spawning. We've got uh, now doing the flounder, and mm-hmm. we have certain times of the year gigging is being stopped. In other words, people are being forced to <laughs> into conservation, whether they like it or not. But the deal is that you've got a lot of anecdotal evidence, and that term I've used quite a bit, where we've just seen what happens if you don't get onto it. Because we had, uh, after the freezes, we had very poor shallow water fishing for redfish because redfish were drying, died too. Mm-hmm. Uh, redfish came back before everything else. And, of course, the baitfish came back first. You saw mullet yeah. coming back because they'd come through the land cut from the south or come from the north from Corpus Christi Bay because although the bay had some big fish kills, they didn't have anything near like what Baffin Bay and the entire Laguna Madre did. Laguna mm-hmm. Madre was almost 100%. Wow. So, all right, uh, shifting gears a little bit, my last question, uh, Mike. And I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, I'm interested to kind of hear your thoughts. And so you alluded to it a little bit, but do you think uh, the state record will ever be broken? And uh, what area do you think it would come out of? Uh, that's an extremely interesting question. Uh, will it be broken in the way that we used to fish or that, or the one that was established now? I don't know. But you stop and think that, that the Texas record was supposedly caught in South Padre uh, on fly equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was longer fish than any trout I've ever heard of and Kyle Speller ever said he saw. So... Maybe that down there they grow bigger. I don't know. I didn't see it. Yeah. And uh, that fish was released. So maybe, if, maybe, maybe that's a, maybe that's one of the the uh, fish that lives forever. Right. It's one that lives forever in everybody's memory. But that fish, I think, was uh, listed at over fifteen pounds. Fifteen, and, yeah. And thirty-seven inches long. Mm-hmm. Carl Spiller used to say he'd never seen anything in all their biological studies more than thirty-five. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, maybe there's a few of those that are. Maybe maybe the atomic bomb will be has, was dropped down there, and now then we got gonna have giant fish like we had giant the giant uh, ants from from uh, them in the in the science fiction back in the fifties that terrified me. That's what used to scare me about the atomic testing. We're gonna have giant ants. I don't know if you you're too young for that, but if you ever get a chance to see the movie Them, it had uh, it had of all people it had uh, Marshall Dillon was one one of the actors in that show. But it was about giant ants that grew up in a in a desert after atomic testing, so who can say uh, how the how the how it'll be broken or where it'll be broken? There's only one, in my opinion, there's only one place that is is going to be South Padre. Interesting, because that's where there's still some. Uh, you get out there, there's a couple of places that I'm aware of that they catch fish. People, there are people that go down there and fish that. I know one of your buddies, David Bjork. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes down there he wants me to teach him about baffin bay and i said there's not much baffin bay can teach you anymore you can still catch some big fish but they're not going to be in my opinion uh, i mean i used to have people showing me pictures and saying this looks like this is a 36 inch 20 pound trout that some guy caught and when you check it out basically it doesn't really pan out to be true the guy was maybe he's he's holding it out at arm's length and and leaning way back, and he was a guy that's only five feet tall. So, so like I said, uh, yeah, it, that's part of the fun of all this. Is 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 you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's like it's no different than than the uh, 
the questions about our, our recent presidential election. <laughs> what, what is true and what is not, and what is a real truth and what's going to be proven to be true? Yeah. Uh, only time will tell. The one thing I will say about, about that and about fishing is that it needs to be truly verified. Whenever you're going to claim something, you need to v- truly verify it. And it needs to also be verified on a consistent scale. If you're going to talk about weights, it's kind of like I said, when I weighed that fish, it weighed, never weighed the same thing. So I, to this day, I don't know that fish, what its real weight was. Mm-hmm. Truly, if you weighed it on a truly, because these were all FDA scales, but yeah. it was how it was weighed. So I hopefully someday they'll have it where they can quickly, if they want to establish a record, the person can really say, yes, this is exactly what it was. This is how long it was and have it all verified. If you, and if the, and maybe we worry too much about such things anyway. Yeah. Maybe maybe a personal record would be more important. It's like I said earlier. To me, the true trophy is something you worked hard at, and maybe even developed your own lure for to catch. Because I get a ball out of all the lures I've developed over the years, catching like I catch these drum on my artificial fly spoons, or on tiny tiny little plastic tube shrimp, <laughs> which work like mad because that's they're dip, they're duplicating their natural prey but they're also handmade and I designed them. They're my own design and uh, they're very successful too. Mm-hmm. That's the good, that's the best part about them. Otherwise I wouldn't use them. I don't build lures just to look at. <laughs> I don't sell them to fishermen. I don't sell any of this stuff. Yes. It's normally like David Bjorky. So I gave him, he always wanted, he wanted me to have at auction a white clicky and I won't go into the definition of what made that, but he wanted one for auction and I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't make one for auction. However, I gave him, I awarded one to him for all his efforts in, on behalf of Ananias. And uh, that's how I deal with things like that. But again, and, and he told me the very next day he took that lure and went fishing in Baffin Bay. And the first two casts, he catches 18 to 20 inch trout at one. So that was, and that was the reward that I got for building that lure and designing it over the years. Yeah. So that's, that's why, how I look at it. And uh, I don't go for records per se anymore. Uh, sure, I wouldn't mind having a shot at one. I don't pursue it per se. Yes, sir. If I pursued it, you know where I'd go. I just told you. Yeah. I'd go possibly, or either that, or, or possibly northern Mexican border. I don't. I've heard some, some stories of some big trout down there. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate it, Mike. I mean, I've had uh, Doc J. Wright. I've asked that same question. Uh, he's actually owned, where uh, he currently owns three IGFA uh, uh, world record trout in various line classes for fly all verified um and obviously he's you know doc j Wright, good friends with dr john gill here fishes a lot i won a lot of events here locally in texas a very very notable and respectable angler uh across the kind of the the big trout circles i guess if you will but you know he kind of gave the same answer actually he said um it would be down in lower laguna madre in south padre or uh over towards the fort pierce uh kind of Indian River Lagoon, kind of middle complex there on the east side of Florida. But it was interesting to kind of hear his thoughts. And so that's why I just wanted to ask you as a guy who's, you know, devoted his life to targeting big fish and just to kind of want to ask you that question, you know, and see what you, if there's still a shot. Because Mike McBride, again, my fishing mentor, wrote an article about it called Beast of Legend, basically where he found a, a giant trout skull, had it verified by Dr. Greg, Greg Stuns. Um, and so we'd always, and, and he said it in, in his podcast is that, you know, was it a big trout in 
are they be would they be caught? It's kind of like Bigfoot, but there's maybe always this glimmer of hope, right? That maybe one big enough uh, to break break either the world record or the state record is still swimming out there, and that's why we continue to get up don waiters in the winter time, or you know make lures or whatever it is to to maybe go and get a shot at one of those truly special fish well it i read one time it's a, a psychological study of fishermen and hunters how you first you you want to learn about it then you want to go uh do uh, see how that's done then you want to catch a few of them or shoot a few of them whatever it is you're talking about then you want to shoot a limit of them or catch a limit of them then you want to catch the biggest one that's out there and then you want to, and then after that, you kind of cost the biggest one. Now I want to challenge myself. Maybe I want to go try fly fishing and, or maybe build my own lures and make for it. So you went, you go, you progress as a sports person. I th- and I think it was a pretty good analysis when I read it uh, of just how we are about anything we do that we keep wanting to challenge. That's, that's human nature to kind of challenge yourself and to get better at it. And of course there are some people that heck they'll be like, uh, in the movie with uh, with the uh, alligator man from from Australia that uh, tosses the game warden dynamite, say, so are you going to talk or fish? You know, if, if your goal is to get how many of them, hey, you've got to dynamite the quickest way. You just sink it with a lead weight and then stand back and net them as they float to the surface. But again, uh, that's not fishing. And, it, and like that, there's, there's, I saw a movie, somebody gave me a, a copy of it on DVD. Uh, of I'm trying to think of what it is. Uh, uh, Once on a blue moon, I think was the title of okay. it. About guys fishing in Australia, when ever so often there is a master amount of small mice or shrews that begin to grow up along the river, and when they do, the brown trout go crazy eating these things, and so they would uh, design lures and so forth, and they'd only in a blue moon, only so often to catch those giant. Tr- uh, brown trout and uh, it's very interesting because again it's, it's the concept of, of different situations ad- adapting to them uh, enjoying them while they're there and uh, because they're not going to a lot of this stuff what you're what you're getting right now Chris may not last for very long what you're considering to be eh, this is just so so compared to what we had years ago well unfortunately I can't take you back yeah I don't think you want to go back and be my age and have only the memories of it. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather trade places, uh, like the, the story about the painting that all of a sudden you can take over the age where the painting ages and you don't. But uh, the the only way you keep it fairly good is to keep first keep doing it, and then keep challenging yourself if things get worse. And and of course people like myself uh, that have done this a lot, uh, both for trout, redfish, uh, drum, whatever. Uh, you can't we can't be run off of every place we've got we just keep going till we find a place and we almost always catch a fish or two it's exceedingly rare using our own baits that we don't catch all we really need any day mm-hmm. i mean but again we we are hunters first yes sir and fishermen second it's only we we only start fishing when we've hunted and found what we want now then we're fishermen but the hunt is first to find the right place and the right situation and the right fish and then, and then the fishing begins. Hmm. And the good news about fishing is, if you t- if you get one in, unlike something you shoot, you can let it go, and maybe and maybe it lives to be caught again, or maybe it spawns and gets other fish to be caught again. So it's it's an upside to always releasing fish. If you don't need them, don't keep them. 
And if you don't have somebody that uh, needs a bunch of fish, don't keep fish for them. Tell them. It's the old story about you give a fish and you feed a person for a day, you teach them how to fish, and you feed them for a lifetime. Uh, if only if they learn how to do these things can they then all of a sudden you can walk away because now they're now they're set they can do it for the rest of their life and be successful well let's leave it right there because that is a tremendous way uh to end this recording mike uh i again sir thank you uh again on behalf of your conservation efforts and pioneering uh all those things uh, that we had alluded to in the podcast and then not only that really taking some time out of your day to really reflect and share those stories those memories in hopes and it's inspiring for me like you just mentioned that um i don't want to reflect on memories of old you know i want to actually create your create own memory. my mo- own memories right and and actually bring the fishery with the intent of bringing the fishery back to what we used to remember it by you, you won't be able to bring it back exactly but what you can is create a fishing that has more memories to it of the type you're talking about of trophy fish. But again, it's gonna, there's a lot of people going to get upset because it's going to change the way they maybe drive their boat, maybe how many fish they keep, and maybe how they approach areas. Uh, they just, I, don't, I don't think most people are, are bad about being sportsmen, not good sportsmen down the lagoon. I think a lot of them, uh, there's a good term that most people don't like to hear, and that's there's ignorance. Ignorance, we're all, I'm ignorant as the devil about lots of things. And the thing is, if you want to learn about it, you have to study it and move it all along and get better. And that's the thing we have to do so far as the fishery is don't be ignorant. Let the biologists give us a good idea like they are of what's going on in Baffin Bay, uh, the, the issues with the grasses, the issues with the, the shellfish and so forth, and make it where all of a sudden the fish come back and then, Come up with a, a schematic to get it where people don't go in there with the idea of filling their box of, with fish, but catch one or two, and then maybe learn what a hook is like, like fly rod fishing. The greatest thing in the world is about fly rod is you can go barbless because the line holds the hook in place. You don't have to have a barb on the hook. Yeah. Ask one of my best buddies, a retired federal judge down the street. I can't tell you how many times we've had to pull hooks out of his ear, and I keep telling him, when are you going to go barbless? Because it's a lot easier to get that hook out of your ear if it's barbless. <laughs> that's awesome well thanks again mike uh again sir i really 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 appreciate it sincerely and so thanks again sir i wish you you lots of luck and i wish everybody else lots of luck and also learn learn as you go because we never stop learning i've learned i'll learn a lot from you you never stop learning even somebody that's new they'll bring up an idea that you never thought of never thought of and all of a sudden you're doing better life is a learning experience Yes, sir. So learn how to fish and learn how to do it right. Yes, sir. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks again for staying tuned. Uh, I really, really appreciate Mr. Mike Blackwood. And then, uh, again, for you guys' listenership out there. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and listening to Mike and, and a true legend. And, uh, again, always want to kind of leave you with our, our parting uh, note, and that is always take what you need, release the rest, take care, and God bless. Take care. Take care.